Welcome to the Neck Now Podcast, presented by the New England Center for Children. Today's episode features the third part of a lab discussion with Jason Beret, NECC's clinical director. Jason is also a Western New England University faculty member who teaches courses in the treatment of severe problem behavior, verbal behavior, and quantitative modeling. Jason is joined by Dave Palmer, a professor emeritus at Smith College and a fellow Western New England University faculty member. Dave teaches an advanced verbal behavior course in the Western New England University Behavior Analysis doctoral program and is a world-renowned expert on B.F. Skinner, verbal behavior, and behavior analytic theory. Dave and Jason are also joined by John Pinkston, a Western New England faculty member as well. John conducts research with both human and non-human subjects, asking important questions about fundamental learning processes. His expertise covers extensive ground, including philosophy of science, computer programming, experimental apparatus design, statistics, behavior pharmacology, response effort, and modifying experimental methodology to allow us to study new dimensions of behavior. Jason, Dave, John, and Western New England University graduate students discussed the final reply to the article that proposed reconceptualizing the motivating operation concept. Thank you to Dave and John for coming. Um, this is the Bray Lab special topics discussion. Today we're uh, discussing the, the reply to the replies from the Edwards et al. 2019 paper on reconceptually motivating operations. Um, we've got uh, Dave Palmer with us. So Dave, professor emeritus at uh, Smith College and instructor of the Western New England program. Hi, Dave. Welcome. Howdy, howdy. Good to see you. We also are um, fortunate to have John Pinkston. You can't see him, but he's got like a kind of a hat is that you look like perhaps you've broken into some place and started looting it. It's anyway. only because I refuse to comb my hair on the weekend. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, why, why about a societal pressure, right? John's, uh, John's one of the Western, um, Western, Western New England faculty, um, basic researcher. He's got a rat lab and um, specializes in research on response effort, among other things. So we're very happy to have John here. May I, may I jump in uh, for a moment, Jason? Sure, of course. Go ahead. Dave Palmer. Um, John, could you take off your hat one more time? Um, does anyone else notice how much like George Orwell mm. John looks yeah. uh, with his hair in that particular must up condition? Mm. I mean, it's uncanny. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you say that because I, I did ask for the for the um, you know Orwellian when I went in you know um, please give me the 1984 or it's proper for the that, time that that was the cost of this haircut actually it was 1984 um, <laughs> well thank you okay so um, so I, I think well, I'd like to start us on discussion of the Edwards paper and then I, I, we'll see how much time we have. And I think this will probably string into a few different meetings to um, talk with Dave about some of the, the work he's doing on reconceptualizing um, the concept of response classes. So, so let's, let's start with the paper for, um, for some of those who are sort of new to this, I'll overview a little bit and then I, uh, Dave and John and whoever else can correct me for all the errors that I make. Um, so the the concept of the motivating operation is um, fundamental to our understanding of the way that the behavior um, chunks up or is categorized or is um, functionally controlled. So at, at the most basic level, 
uh, our science will um, study what we'll refer to as processes. There are operations and outcomes. And the operation is the thing you do, and then it produces some outcome with regard to your dependent variable. And as we observe um, commonality across procedures and outcomes, we then uh, might abstract those and talk about fundamental processes or basic processes. So the, the motivating operation um, concept is a, a form of process like that. There's a thing that is done and there's a reliable outcome from the thing that's done. These definitions are, are functional in nature. So if um, whether we're talking about reinforcement or punishment or discriminative stimulus control or motivating operations, they, they are observed or not observed. So there is an operation and either we see that outcome and we say, yes, this is an example of that process or we don't observe the particular outcome that defines the process and we say, nope, it's not an example. So th these are um, core parts of our understanding of behavior and the way that it operates. It's also important to realize that, that behavior is, um, this is this is like sort of my, my perspective. The, I, I find it helpful to think of behaviors as modular in nature. So um, an example that I'll give when I'm teaching students about functional analysis of behavior um, is to um, start by asking them to take notes and I make them start actually taking notes and then I'll pick some poor student and uh, take his pen away and then I'll say now I need you to take notes and then we wait and see what he does. Sometimes he'll dig another pen out of his bag and then I'll take that one too and I'll say no no, no we have to take notes. And some then he might turn and ask a, a neighbor for a pen and then I'll take that one and at this point, it's getting a little ridiculous. And then perhaps next, he'll, he'll break open a laptop or something like that. Point being, he's not, he, he, he does a series of things, um, but he doesn't order like a coffee, right? He doesn't, he doesn't get his car keys out. He continues to produce stimuli that would allow him to, to take notes, to produce a, a record of the conversation that we're having. So we, we might view my, um, initial request that everyone take notes as an establishing operation. And it makes reinforcing the, the note product. So whether it's on paper or electronic. And that, that evokes behavior that characteristically has resulted in note taking. If I take his pen, again, he doesn't, he doesn't order a coffee from me, he gets another pen. So the, the behavior that, that we observe is orderly. We, we, the initial first observed response is the taking of notes with a pen. And then we remove that and then there's pen searching and then maybe there's asking somebody and then maybe there's getting a laptop. But those happen together in the sense that once one of these discriminated operands undergoes extinction, we see the occurrence of another and then another and another. And it, you might reach a point where we've exhausted them. So now we don't see, we don't see behavior. But the, the point that I'm trying to make is that there's there's an, an EO that will affect a variety of um, response classes. And there are, there are natural lines of fracture between those and other ones. Alternatively, if this student is in Starbucks, he might order a venti drip coffee. And if he's in Dunkin' Donuts, he might order a large regular coffee, but he's not probably taking out a pen and taking notes. You know what I mean? Like these are, these are different um, functional collections of response classes. So that's sort of an overview. Dave or John, did I mess anything up there? Is there anything you want to add to that? 
Well, I did want to add a couple of things. Um, you haven't messed anything up by, by uh, to the contrary, but um, there, if, if he runs off things, well, first of all, let, let's uh, uh, emphasize something that you, 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 you mentioned, and that is that these are things that he's done before to get, yeah. get right. to take notes. Um, if your uh, lab meeting is being you know, monitored by the Russians, um, and he doesn't know that, he, he's not going to call up his, his uh, Russian agent and ask him for a copy of the notes. Um, but if he did know that, that would be one more thing on the list. Mm. So, um, so it has to be something that he has had a history with. Um, now, but, but what about um, problem solving, where he's run out of things that he knows how to do, but he turns over and asks Stephanie, um, how the hell am I going to take notes without a pencil? And she says, oh, it's easy. You um, uh, turn on the tape recorder that's over in the corner of the room. Mm. And he goes and turns on the tape recorder in the corner of the room, um, taking advantage of someone else's repertoire with respect to these things. So, so I mean, the point is that the motive, the conditions, the motivating variables can potentiate problem solving behavior, which is uh, un, not, not narrowly related to the motivating operation itself sure. or for the first time it is. Yeah, right. John, anything you want to pitch in? Well, I, I thought all that was great. I, I would even, you know, just, just to further, you know, Dave's, uh, Dave's example, he could only turn on the tape recorder if he had had experience with a tape recorder before. If, if he had no behavior with respect to the tape recorder, he'd probably be out of luck then, or he would have to continue to ask questions yeah. until he got some stimulus that was in the repertoire that could be, could be acted upon right. um, effectively. And the, he has to speak the language of the speaker. So he, the, if he doesn't have the right listener repertoire and somebody says, oh, you go and turn on the tape recorder, but that person says it in a language that for which he doesn't have the proper repertoire to respond and that won't do anything for him, right? Is, um, the complexity ramps up. So it's, it's in, um, there, there's a reason why we have uh, basic science preparations and we attempt to simplify these things so that there, um, we can understand, study the processes that are at play without um, confounds and confusion. And that, that's, that's important. And those interpretations we bring to bear in more complicated environments. So if you can imagine, I was trying to think of the right analogy for this and I couldn't, I didn't get anywhere good. So, you know, I'm, I'm open to any thoughts, but I was, I was mulling over this, these notions of these types of response classes, the effects of motivating operations and the effects of, of discriminative stimulus control. And, and one analogy that I came up with is like, um, well, I, I guess a couple of things. So one is um, contingencies exist in nature. So the, the contingencies are part of nature, they exist in nature. So and behavior then conforms to them as behavior encounters them. So you might, if you imagine, you've got um, a, a table that has a, a rat maze with a, a bunch of different paths in it, right? Each of those paths exists before the rat goes into it. The rat goes in and experiences um, one of them and ends up getting food. One of the reasons why people, there isn't as the same widespread use of complicated mazes for rats anymore is that you get variability between the subjects depending on their first experience. So one rat might take a particular path and then that path is the thing that we observe happening again the next time. 
Whereas another rat might take a different path and they're doing different things, but they're both resulting in food. One of them might be shorter than the other, but if the rat that took the long path, and that's the only experience the rats ever had, there might be a much shorter path that would be smarter for the rat to take. But if the rat has never experienced that path, the rat's never gonna take it. So, so if, if you imagine that's the, the development of discriminative stimulus control in that sense, there are, there's reinforcement of behavior in the presence of particular stimuli. And then when the rat experiences that maze again, those stimuli exert control and we see response patterns that have been brought under the control of those stimuli. Now, if this is where my analogy goes, completely AWOL. So it's it, the way that behavior operates in multi-operant environments is there isn't just, there's not just one maze, there are different, there are different mazes. So there, there are circumstances under which um, your, your pen works and it writes and then, but then your pen dies. And there are those circumstances in which you don't have a pen at all. And there are circumstances in which you're taking notes on your computer. There are circumstances in which there's somebody else to ask for a pen there are circumstances in which there isn't somebody else to ask for. So all of those environments are circumstances under which the contingencies keep changing and behavior ultimately conforms to them. So it's like you have, I don't, I, it's probably not an infinite number, but there's like, there's a lot of mazes, right? And, and your behavior conforms to the particular one that you're experiencing now. And those stimuli will exert control of responding. And then to overlay onto that, the effect of motivating operations. So which, which collection of mazes are we dealing with? Well, you're dealing with the collection of mazes that has um, been associated with particular reinforcers. And so like um, when this pandemic rolled out, you know how you couldn't buy um, cleaning products Remember that? Like I went, I don't know how many places I went looking for Lysol. Well, if I'm going to the store and I need Lysol and I've got tons of paper towels because I had tons of paper towels. I still have like a whole closet full of paper towels. I could go to the store and I'm looking for Lysol. And if Lysol cost me like 40 bucks a bottle, I'm gonna buy it, you know? And somebody's saying, and there's somebody outside who's like, no, 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 but like, I'll give you paper towels for free. In fact, I'll pay you to take these paper towels. It doesn't matter, I'm still buying the Lysol. So I'm not, so here's, here's what I'm trying to say. The, the, the response classes that are characteristically maintained by Lysol are at strength. And the other, other ones don't even matter. They don't, there, there is no exertion of discriminative stimulus control for members of those other response classes that are maintained by other things at that time. Now that certainly will shift. There are gonna be changes in, in motivating operations. There are, um, like Chelsea mentioned, prevailing EOs, dominant EOs, which one is currently present. And that, that'll shift, that can, that can rapidly shift. But, but there's also a sense in which I think um, the, the Edwards paper talks about the effect of the motivating operation um, being uh, mediated by discriminative stimulus control. But I, you can, I, I think there's probably another angle to think about this from. Like the, the effect of the discriminative stimulus control are entirely dependent upon the particular motivating operation being at strength, right? And only then do those stimuli act as discriminative stimuli, right? So is that, you know, I don't know, whatever. He's, but I, I have like a, that's my juggling rat maze analogy for response classes. Um, let's, let's talk um, a little bit about the, summarize the Edwards finding. And then I wanna, um, you know, hear thoughts from people on that and we can get to some of the student questions or the Edwards um, interpretation. 
it's probably a better way to say it. Generally speaking, the, the interpretation in the Edwards et al. paper is um, to highlight this notion that um, motivating operations act through discriminative stimuli. So like they modulate an effect of a discriminative stimulus. And that is as opposed to having an independent effect. And that's, that it ends, those end up being two different things in terms of um, if, if they modulate an effect of a discriminative stimulus, if you don't have a discriminative stimulus, you should see no effect of a motivating operation. Because that's sort of like, if that variable is set to zero, then you can multiply that by whatever you want, you're still at zero. So there's that sort of notion. Uh, another main part of their paper, which I think you can disentangle from the, the first sort of stipulation is to, to dismiss with the concepts of condition motivating operations altogether. And that, that, that I, don't, I don't think you need to take both of those positions at the same time, right? Um, Dave and John, that's um, right to you guys or anything you wanna to add to the Edwards et al summary? We have, we have nothing. Okay, great, good. Didn't have screwed that up too badly then. Okay, thoughts about um, the reply to the replies. We have any, any immediate reaction from folks on them. John, what are you thinking? So, you know, I, I thought you did a really nice job summarizing the, the paper and I, I don't actually have a lot to quibble with, with that paper. I, I, as a matter of fact, when I read the first paper, uh, I thought, well, this is like Donahoe, Palmer, and Burgos, and I may have gotten the order, you know, confused. Uh, um, you know, <clears throat> and I, I really, really sort of liked where they were coming from. But the one thing that I thought was um, was really a glaring omission in the whole treatment. I was surprised in the paper, nor in any of the, the replies, did anyone ever bring up shaping or the acquisition of new responses? And how do we speak about behavior when they're they, they seem to always pit established behavior, which could be discriminative control, could appeal to this other process, which has got weak support. But what about when you can't appeal to discriminative control? So maybe back to problem solving would fit in, but certainly just shaping in any acquisition of, of the response. Why does the reinforcer work the way that it does in that moment? Um, I was sort of surprised that that didn't show up anywhere in all this, uh, this these readouts. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that speaks to um, trying to trying to figure out if um, we did some sort of thought experiments previously, trying to think about are there circumstances in which there is no exertion of descriptive control. So can we get a can we get a clean baseline and then manipulate our motivating operations and check to see if they're moving behavior around or not, right? And the the notion of shaping is interesting because there there is no there isn't yet. Uh, demonst demonstrated or established discrimination stimulus control, right? So I don't, I don't know how they would respond to that. There, there's, um, they, they do support the the consequence effect altering part of the MO definition. So it's, I, I think they would say, or I imagine they would say that if given a stronger EO, the consequences would be more effective at shaping, right? As opposed to given a, an abolishing operation, perhaps. The consequence isn't doing anything. There's also a, a part to this, and Dave has brought this up before, and it, this was in the Edwards et al. paper, and so I, I was interested to see it there. Even in circumstances in which we don't, we don't as experimenters explicitly put in place um, uh, multiple schedules or three-term contingencies, 
um, there still are stimuli that end up being um, automatically correlated with the availability of reinforcement. So things like if, if there's, if you have a rat in a chamber and it's just FR1, press the lever, food happens. Well, the rat's got to get to the lever. So the, the stimuli associated with the, the lever in the visual field and the feel of the lever, the, those stimuli are differentially associated with this, whatever this movement is resulting in reinforcement. So even under those circumstances, it's kind of hard to, to identify uh, exactly where we can be entirely free from discriminative control. Now, in their reply, they mention, and, and David mentioned this also, this notion of, and they, I, I found, um, I found their, um, the, the way in which they tackled this to be um, a little bit unsatisfying, but they, they just discussed this notion of like, if, if there are sufficient circumstances in which some response is reinforced, perhaps then there's a, a relatively wide um, ar array of situations in which the, the discriminative stimulus control doesn't really matter and it's, we're gonna be um, more effective in describing changes in the probability behavior as just changes in the function of, or the changes in the motivating operations. And that, that I think is, that's important. And, and one of the, a couple of ways that we did at that, at least to me, strike me that in terms of, of avoiding discriminative stimulus control, you're really looking for two-term contingencies. So can we find any place where we have just a two-term contingency? And, and one of the ones that hits me is this notion of like precurrent thinking. So you, you um, solve a math problem and you do it covertly, say. Somebody asks you, um, what's a 156 divided by 12? And you go, well, let's see, 12 times 12 is 144, plus another 12 is 156. Oh, okay, so it's 12 times 13, right? You're acting on your own listener repertoire as you walk through and do that problem solving. And that, that listener repertoire is, is no more likely to be um, in existence, it's it, your your solving of that problem is no more likely just because someone asked you to solve the problem. They're, they're asking you to solve it is not differentially correlated with um, your successful ability to solve it. And so under that circumstance, it seems to me like that when you're asked that question, it has to be an EO. It has to be establishing the answer is reinforcing and then it evokes behavior that, that has characteristically resulted in that. So that, that I find to be a, a compelling example of this like freedom from discriminative control thing. Now, one of, one of the students mentioned, asked a question about, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get it wrong so I don't have it directly in front of me, the, the, this notion of, in our theory, um, going, describing the functional relation is the thing that's generally the case. And so there was, in the Edwards paper, there was this, there was this sort of, in, as part of this discussion, this statement, well, you know, e even if you could have find these two-term contingencies, these circumstances under which behavior really is undifferentiated in accordance with any sort of discriminative stimulus control, well, that's probably pretty rare. So we, sh we should then, in our definition of what an MO does, say that it's impacting discriminative stimulus control. And so I, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on that because, from my perspective, um, that it, that seems to be um, maybe not the best way to try to describe the functional relation that exists in nature. You know, 
therein that the even if it's most common, that doesn't mean it's accurate, if that makes sense. I hop on the student questions. Here's I'm gonna I'm gonna read this and then I want to know what you have to say about it. So here's uh, this one is one of Edwards' primary arguments for reconceptualization of MOs and CMOs is that lesser experienced or not well trained behavior analysts just don't understand the MO concept, so they make it simpler. Is this a valid reason for the reconceptualization of a scientific concept or process? Uh, I I personally don't think so. And the more appropriate response is to focus on remediation of how we teach the concept of behavior analytic training programs in order to ensure it is better understood by the broader behavior analytic community. Dave, what do you think? Should we should we make things simpler because people don't get it? Well, I'm with the student on, on this one. Uh, I think uh, it doesn't make sense to um, modify the concept to, to suit the prejudices of a, of a student. Um, but, um, but I do, uh, I, I think there's something to be said for, um, in, in pedagogy, you have to, you have to take the, the, into consideration the baseline repertoire of your, of your students. So, um, so I could, I could um, defend a, a shaping uh, paradigm where the, the first thing you say is is the Edwards definition, and then you and you, and you uh, get the student to a, a different level later on. Uh, so so there definitely are pedagogical reasons to keep things simple at first, but I don't think that's any different from any other any other concept. Um, I, I, I want to throw something into the mix before going further, and sure. that is, I think Jack Michael would say that a discriminative stimulus is something that you have um that that is that arises from that multiple schedule that that you you uh, it, it's it's an experimental um it's the output of a of an experimental procedure where where you can you can show that this particular stimulus has a, a particular evocative effect because of this history and he would never deny that there is implicit um discrimination going on in, in undifferentiated procedures. But I think his use of the term is simply that narrower use. And right. any discrepancy between him and, and Edwards um, might, um, you know, might, might kind of dissolve if they got down into a room together and hashed it right. out. Um, the, 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 I, I keep trying to think of examples where um, there are no discriminative stimuli. And the only thing I can think of is if you were suddenly ejected from Earth out into outer space and you're floating around and it happens to be warm enough that you're able to live for more than a nanosecond. But let's assume you're floating around in outer space and as time goes on, you get hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And uh, you say, damn, I wish I had a sandwich. And all of a sudden a sandwich appears. Um, well, um, are, are there discriminative stimuli that, that, that evoke that? And, and it occurs to me that, well, hunger is, has stimulus properties. Um, and I know Skinner has said not all drive, a drive is not a stimulus, but, but um, we would have to rule out 
the stimulus properties of MOs themselves. That is, the, 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 the motivating operation has, is likely to induce stimulus properties directly, at least in, in the case of hunger and thirst and, yeah. and warmth and so on. Yeah. I mean, that's always tricky. The, the, uh, when I think about um, the, and, and this has relevance to the um, reflexive condition motivating operation concept. Um, there's this, this argument that's made in the 82 paper that um, um, shock can't differentially signal its own removal. So this idea that, that the, the shock itself would be um, acting as an, an establishing operation, that it is, mm -hmm. it is in that sense of cocaine behavior. Um, it, and if you were to try to establish a discriminative stimulus, you'd need to have shock in both circumstances. You'd have to have shock and then maybe some tone versus shock and some other thing. But the shock would have to be present in both cases for us to get discrimination control, you know? And so that's, that, that I think is, um, it, there, there's a place in the Edwards paper where the, the, some of Jack Michael employed some phrasing um, that was a little complicated, but the concept is a little complicated. And so I don't, I don't find that to be a problem in and of itself, you know? They like the. I, I want to talk a little bit about these these condition motivating operations, and then I think we can wrap our discussion of these papers or this paper, and then move on to some of Dave's theory that he's been working on. But the I, I find all three of the condition motivating con operation concepts to be useful, and uh, in relatively it's relatively easy for me to see examples of them. Um, and so I don't I, I don't find myself strongly moved to dismiss with the the notions. Um, the, the three types are, one is surrogate um, condition motivating operations. So this, the EO version of that might be, um, or therein, these are condition motivating operations wherein there's a stimulus that is um, correlated with an already uh, effective establishing operation, and it gains the, the function of that established EO. So this is like, um, if, if, mom is dropping off a child at daycare and then she grabs her stuff and starts walking toward the door. She hasn't even left yet, but the kid starts emitting all this attention. So they, her picking up her bag and getting stuff together is, is correlated with deprivation from attention. And under that circumstance, we see um, the evoking of all this attention. So that I think that's, that seems to make sense to me. The, the reflexive version is, is one in which the uh, stimulus that is associated with um, a, a, a stimulus gains the property such that its own removal it becomes reinforcing or punishment. So the most common example of this is like a condition of risk. And um, that's been well demonstrated that you can stimulate that become condition of risk. The Edwards at all seem to the, the, I didn't, I'm trying to move the other way. So they, they seem to be more inclined to just call it a condition versus stimulus or treat it as a, as, as a unique instance of something rather than trying to identify it as an example of something more common. And I always want to go toward to identify it as an example of something more common. If we have, if there are properties that we can abstract and make a more general statement about nature, that, that to me, I think is a, a, where we'd like our science to go. So if we if we can incorporate that as an example of something that we know how to deal with, and that that I'd rather do. But I don't think that the fact that you could leave it as it is means that the the concept of 
the reflexive condition motivating operation doesn't have value. And then the, the transitive condition motivating operation, I'm a big fan of. And the, um, there's, these are condition motivating operations in which stimuli um, are established as reinforcing in that they are, they are necessary for the production of subsequent reinforcers. So this is wherein elements of a chain, for example, will be established as reinforcing when there's an EO for the thing at the end of the chain, the reinforcer ultimately at the end of the chain. So that establishes all of the things that are required as reinforcing. And if any of them are missing, then we evoke behavior that is characteristically maintained by production of that missing item. So that, that I find to be useful. Steph. Something I was thinking of in this discussion of the CMOT was that it, it varied with respect to whether people thought it was a valuable concept, sometimes depending on our unit of analysis. Yep. So, you know, if we take this ice cream truck example, if you collapse all the behavior from the initial link to now I'm eating ice cream, the deviations may not matter and the CMOT may not be a useful concept in describing iterations of the chain as it pertains to ice cream production. Yeah. But if you zoom in closer to those discrete responses, it, it would help you interpret minor deviations from whatever you're calling this, right. the standard or baseline chain in a way that is functional. Um, and and I, I think allows us nicely to predict and control those deviations, right. you know, in, a, in an environment where we might be um, arranging them. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. So the, the example here is if you hear the ice cream truck, you then might go and get your wallet and you get money out and you put it in your pocket and then you walk out to the ice cream truck and you buy ice cream. And so one interpretation of that is that hearing the ice cream truck, right, that um, signals the availability of ice cream. And um, this is a stimulus for which there's already an EO that is um, in place. So it is reinforcing, um, but the money is needed to buy the ice cream. And so one, the, the TCEO interpretation is that, that the absence of money that establishes the production of money and that we then evoke behavior that is characteristically produced money. And so that's, that's a, a molecular way of seeing that as part of that sequence. Then you'd go and get your ice cream. Now here's the alternative, which, which to me, I want to walk through this a little bit. The alternative is hearing that the hearing the ice cream truck is an SD for for a big unit of behavior. And but the thing about that is that big unit of behavior is a that is a functional unit, like that's a unitary thing. So for that to be the case, then hearing the ice cream truck would have to be discriminative for like going to a particular place and getting your wallet. But what if your wallet isn't always there? What if it's someplace else, right? And what if you don't have money in your wallet? Well, then you're going to use a credit card. Or what if you can't find your wallet and you like ask somebody else, oh, can I borrow five bucks, right? So it seems to me like there might be a variety of ways in which you, you might act in producing money. And then that subsequently allows the continuation of movement through this chain. But if, if, it's, if it's that the sound of the ice cream truck is a, is a unitary stimulus, well, which of those does it signal? Like how would you, under why would you do one pattern versus another versus another versus another versus another? Like if, if that's one stimulus that signals one huge response chain, I'm, it isn't clear to me how a, how that, how, it's, it's not just one response chain, you would see a whole variety. So then how would all of those get established and how would they be ordered hierarchically in terms of what you would occur? And how do we account for stuff like you were saying, deviations in smaller units that are parts of those sequences? 
Dave, does that make sense? Do you have a thought about this? It, it does, um, but I'm afraid I'm not much help. I, 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 I get a headache when I try to mm. distinguish between the two different interpretations of, of um, what's going on. And I, I find the CMOT to be intuitively plausible. Right. And, and I don't have to work too hard to, to grasp it. But as the examples get more and more complex, I find that I'm, I'm lost, frankly. Yeah. Well, you know, those, they mentioned, Edwards had all mentioned those interrupted chains procedures. Yeah. And he, the, I find those to make a compelling case for the, the transitive CEO. It, it's like the idea is separately. In some other circumstance, you establish a man for an element of this chain. And this is for a participant who's never experienced the chain occurring without that element in it. Mm-hmm. And then your test is you take the element out, right? It, and if you if you see then the emission of a man for the, the element that was removed, the only plausible interpretation, I think, is that the absence is evoking as an EO that response. You can't say that it's part of an established unitary chain because it never happened. That was not part of that chain. And so if we observe on the first instance a man for the missing element, I don't, I don't see how you could interpret that a- any other way than as evidence that we've got a transitive condition CEO place. So certainly it isn't part of an established response chain that's already under discriminative control. You know, they, they take this um, extremely, to invoke a term, molecular, you know, uh, viewpoint of this. And to get to these, um, you know, how do we explain these subtle nuances? I, I, I think for them, the, the, the class, maybe one way to think about it is the class doesn't already exist as a hierarchy. The class is sort of built spontaneously uh, as, this, as this set of events cascade, you know, forward in time. So when you hear the ice cream truck, you may start looking for your wallet. Um, you know, if you can't find your wallet, you may see $5 laying on the counter. And then you stop looking for your wallet at that moment and go get the $5 and, and go outside then. But none of them were perhaps pre-assembled units just sort of waiting for the ice cream truck music to sound in the environment and then, and then unfold. Um, I sort of think it's interesting is, is if there's $5 laying on the counter, if you've never had a history of picking $5 up off the counter and going out to the ice cream truck, you're likely to totally bypass that buy and keep looking for your wallet, which you do have a history of looking for your wallet, finding it, and then going outside. Yeah. But if you're looking for your wallet eventually extinguishes, then you look around and go, oh, there's $5. And then that becomes a, a viable solution. So the, the, the nuances, I guess what I'm responding to Stephanie's, uh, I think it was Stephanie's question, the nuances in the behavior as it unfolds are directly related to the nuances in the environment as it's been structured. Right. Yeah, I mean, John, that's, that's how I see that rolling out also. I, I think the thing that's a that's a challenge to this um, the the big chain interpretation is that the if you're going to view it as a chain at all, just like you said, you, you've got the initial responding is maintained by access to money, right? And so that so something here established money is reinforcing, and you weren't looking for money until you heard that ice cream truck. And so even even then, if, if we're going to go with like a a big chain sort of iterated cascade sequence. The, it seems to me like the embedded components of that chain, the, 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 the sort of like three-term units, the, the reinforcer on the end of each of those is established via that TCEO arrangement. You know, I don't, I don't know how we could get it otherwise. 
Jason, I had a question I was too scared to ask earlier. <laughs> I thought it might be too dumb, but John's example struck me uh, with my question. So he talked about you hear this ice cream truck and then you go on this search. Why is the search for a production of relevant discriminative stimuli not evidence for the behavior altering effects of the MO? Yeah, I, I mean, they, they, Edwards brings that up, but they, they, they seem again to, to default to um, uh, as a specific separate phenomenon, we know that discriminative stimuli can come to serve as condition reinforcement. And so from, from my perspective, I would rather, if we can unify that into a larger concept that, 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 is, that, that is more general, then I would rather do that instead of having a variety of related phenomenon that I have to learn about all of these different particular things that have different names. If, there's a, if there are common features, I would rather bring those together. So it seems like they are, they are saying, yeah, yeah, we know that, that, condition, that discriminative stimuli can act like condition reinforcement, right? But the question is, it, it isn't just that they're all condition reinforcers all the time. It's specifically that they are condition reinforcers given the, the ice cream truck sound. Cause you don't like them, you don't need, you're not spending the money constantly. You're just spending it right now. And that establishes it as reinforcing in that moment. And even that the, you know, I understand that the, the phrasing perhaps is, is, I don't know if it's convoluted or complicated, but like conditional conditioned reinforcers, you know, that's annoyingly alliterative maybe, but it's, it's right. It's like under certain circumstances, it isn't like the, you know, you don't, I, everybody likes money, I guess, but you don't like, you don't hug money. You know what I mean? You know, like, Oh, money, you're not like all like walking around carrying money in your hands constantly. And it's just like, money's amazing. And you have to always have it uh, in your hand. And you know what I, like, that's not, how, it's not how it works. It's a, it's a means to an end. And it, it is establishes reinforcing under certain circumstances, but that, then it's uh, outside of the circumstances. It's not, Right. It it's not like an imbued property of a thing, like it's mass or something like that. You wouldn't work to produce dollars in Europe, right? You'd go for Europe. Well, yeah, sure. It's, right. So, so there you've got, there's, there's a separate contingency there and the, the dollars are no longer part of the sequence. Now you've got euros that are in there instead. Yeah, you, you know, in this, in this uh, concept, I, I, um, you know, revision. I, I, I value this uh, word potentiate, and I, I sort of really like that. It made me think of, um, you know, um, ethologists have talked about the umwelt, right? The, the, the sort of different animals, given their, you know, evolutionary history, go into different animals might come into the same environment and they see things differently. The world pops for them in different ways. If you're, if you're a, a a honeybee on a meadow, the flowers sort of pop for you in a way they might not be if you're a coyote seeking for a uh, seeking a rabbit for lunch. But then, hair-shaped or rabbit-shaped um, images might pop for you. But but you know we can learn to umwelt, you know. And I think that's sort of what you know this this mo concept is applied here. Given you know the sound of the ice cream truck, now stimuli that weren't popping out in in the environment now they become to do so. So now my wallet begins to pop out, or the dollars begin to to pop out and um, and we might casually say, I begin to notice them where I didn't notice them before. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that's either interpretation leads you to think about something like that, doesn't it? Like the, the EO, it energizes or empowers the SD, 
and and it, even in the sense of something like seeing as behavior, you're not, you know, what, what you talked about earlier, you might pass the five dollar bill on the table, you might not even see it. You know, you're the the response that you're engaging in in the moment is is wallet production and you know stimuli associated. You might oh, there are my pants hanging on that chair from yesterday. Maybe I left my wallet in them. And so that's what you see and move toward. And you might go right past it almost in that case, but yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. I guess I still, you know, when you talk about are there two, are there two mechanism may not be the right word, two mechanisms or two actions of these events that we, mm -hmm. that we do to, or like we deprive a rat of food or we deprive a, a person of snacks or by virtue of circumstance, someone is deprived of water or whatnot. Um, you know, going back to acquisition or shaping, you, you, I, I would actually like for Dave to weigh in because I sort of uh, feel like maybe what goes on in shaping or when, the, when we apply reinforcers following behavioral events early on in the acquisition process is those reinforcers help pick out those certain environment response relationships. Like this little bit of the chamber near the lever is strongly correlated with food early on. And then we gradually restrict those, those stimulus sets that are correlated with, with responses. So now you have to like sniff the lever, be near the lever, touch the lever, et cetera, in, in shaping. But that the reinforcer is sort of picking out these stimulus response relationships. But, but that's, maybe I'm being too naive about this, but that to me is, is sort of aside from the fact of why the reinforcer now can pick those out when before maybe it could not. Dave, what do you think? Any thoughts about that? Well, um, I don't know that I can speak coherently about that particular question, but I, I wanted to jump back to um, another point. And that is that if the MO um, establishes a stimulus as a discriminative stimulus, which is something you said earlier, that is in the absence of the MO, uh, an SDE doesn't evoke behaviors. So it's the, the MO seems to have this, this power to in, endow discriminative stimuli with uh, evocative uh, effect. And I guess that's the Edwards point. But if that's true, and if discriminative stimuli are also, if we're just gonna say that they're automatically conditioned reinforcers, then it's equally true that the CMOT concept is correct. That is, hmm. the, the MO endows stimuli with this effect, then the production of those stimuli become, uh, um, the, 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 the reinforcing uh, effectiveness of those stimuli, the conditioned reinforcing effectiveness yeah. is conditional upon the um, original MO. So it seems to me that that, that, that strategy of of um, calling the uh, uh, resorting to the identity between SDs and and, and condition reinforcers validates Michael's interpretation. Yeah. Uh, uh, without getting into other mm. things. Yeah, great point. I hadn't thought of that. Right. If the if the MOs if the action is strengthening the discriminative stimulus control or or um, uh, I don't know what the creating it, not, it, it has to, it ha the contingency has to be such that behaviors conform to it. But if it turns it on, maybe, I don't know, like if it's the, if the EO is the on switch that, that powers the, the SD, then it would also necessarily, if SDs are acting as conditioned reinforcers, it would, it would also be the thing that makes them so. 
right? Yes. And now, how um, how ready are we to say that SDs are also condition reinforcers? I mean, there is certainly yeah. evidence to that to that effect, but is that a um, is that itself conditional, or is that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've I find I find the data to be very compelling for that. And there, there have been um, Paraholz has a couple of studies in which they're they're very well controlled, and in which there's a comparison of stimulus-stimulus pairing to um, embedding a stimulus within a three-term contingency such that it becomes discriminative um, for the availability of reinforcement. And the the latter, well, the former doesn't work all the time, and the latter works better all of the time. And there's also this um, Dozier et al. paper. Somebody correct me. I want to say 2012 for that. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, and it's really interesting. It's with um, it's it's with folks with disabilities, and the idea is to try to make um, praise statements reinforcing, which would be great if we could establish them as condition reinforcers. And and they did a zillion trials of stimulus stimulus pairing and couldn't couldn't get effects. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until they embedded it within a contingency, so they had it so that it was like. Um, it was it was part of a response, and then there was a response, and then the stimulus was produced, and then there was a reinforcer produced. So it was still stimulus-stimulus pairing, but it had to be in a contingency. Uh, and and that I find to be pretty compelling evidence that there is the the establishment of this discriminative control function is. Um, I, I'm going to say necessary. I mean, I think if it from my perspective. Even the stimulus-stimulus pairing is tricky to interpret because that there are still elements of operant behavior that are part of consuming the reinforcer. So even if you're just doing like the you know there's a tone and there's food, well when the food's not there until the tone's on, so the tone comes on and then you turn and then you see the food given the tone and now you walk over and you eat it. And if you were to look and walk over and try to take stuff out of the, the food hopper, you wouldn't be able to unless the tone's on. So even even in those circumstances, it's hard to not have some operant behavior contingency in place at the same time. Okay. So we, we just have a few minutes left. I'm inclined to, to wrap our discussion of the Edwards paper. And then um, Dave, if you wanna give us like a teaser, an overview of some of the, the theory you've been working on, and then maybe during our next meeting, we can really dive in and drill deeper. Okay. The, um, the, the question uh, boils down to our concept of response classes and uh, how we understand uh, where response classes come from and, and how they're defined. And the standard definition of a response class is, uh, this is from, I'll just say, a major book in applied behavior analysis. I don't want to pick on anyone because I think this is a very common definition. I bet every every person who goes to the BCA, BACB exam probably has coughed it up. And that is that response class is a set of behaviors that are, um, uh, that all lead to a common consequence. So the response class is defined by the consequence that it produces. Can, can I ask you quickly, do you, do you yes. um, there's like, um, you know, like Catania's descriptive versus functional response class yeah. distinction. Where, where are you standing on that? Because the, the way that you phrased it in that case was sort of like the, the response class is all the things that 
that produce this reinforcer, but that's different from saying it's the a collection of response topographies that that is increased in likelihood given an EO for that reinforcer. Correct. So um, the standard definition would be Katania's um, descriptive class yep. uh, if the description was um, closes the microswitch. Right. So any behavior that closes the microswitch in a Skinner box is sure. an, is a member of the response class. Um, and the functional, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's worth uh, coming back to Catania. Catania would say that the functional class is the set of behaviors that, that can be shown to increase yep. reinforcement as applied to the closing of the microswitch. Right. Um, and so that might be, um, uh, to use uh, John, uh, John Pinkston's um, uh, paradigm, the rat might um, press the lever with enough force to operate the microswitch, but we'll also see an increase in sub-threshold um, forces. That is, if you look at the response, that the force distribution, you'll find that the force distribution overlaps with the uh, descriptive class. Um, so, uh, so he would regard all of the forces that hang together as a result of the reinforcement contingency to be the functional class, which does not perfectly map on to the descriptive class. I don't know if that's clear or not, but um, anyone who knows John's work will know will, will grasp this immediately. The point is that you you might say, "Damn it all! I'm going to I'm going to reinforce uh, this particular response topography." Uh, and that's what you're measuring, and that's what you're recording, and that's what your cumulative records show, and so on. But behind the scenes, the rat is also engaging in um, other behavior, which is closely related to the yeah. target behavior. So, so John, jump, jump in and describe some of that work, because I think it's important and relevant to this discussion. Uh, well, I'm, I'm just appreciate someone has actually read it. Dave, uh, thank you for uh, calling attention to it. Um, yeah, I, I would say I, actually that was something I sort of um, thought about this series of papers that we've been reading. They people talk about response classes as if they are one response, and they that that seemed to show up in the reply too. There was some quote where you know the, the there's the one one response, mm -hmm. um, but um, so yeah, so so Catania's uh, defines a descriptive response in terms of the physical quantity or 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 um, uh, the, the, the terms that must be satisfied before the response will quite literally count. Yeah. But about that, there is this other distribution that forms and that's the functional response. But you know, I think what Dave is saying and what I would agree with is that functional response is again about that descriptive class. So if I talk about you know, the lever press that must exceed 20 Newtons of force on the, on the lever, and then I'm getting a bunch of forces about that on that lever, that's the functional class. The rat pressing on another lever somewhere else with some other forces would not be part of that functional class. And that that's exactly the point that my um, little PowerPoint or whatever, um, potentially a paper or something is about. That is um, the definition that we find in our textbooks uh, would say that anything that uh, leads to the reinforcer um, is a member of the same class. So, so if um, if the rat um, turns around and scrambles at a you know at a screw head on the opposite side of the chamber, 
and his tail lashes against the lever and, and presses it, um, that would be considered part of the response class according to the standard definition. Uh, in other words, topography is irrelevant from the definition that's in our textbooks. Um, and, and Catania was a little bit elusive on this point. He alludes to topography as one of the things that might be in the descriptive class. Um, but I, I don't think he, his, his paper really addresses this central question. Can we, can we lump all of the behavior that leads to a particular consequence into a response class? And Jason and I have previously tossed around the idea that there's a, that these, all of these um, behaviors are unified by a motivational variable, but they're not, uh, that they don't co-vary uh, with one another. They're not mutually replaceable with one another um, within the uh, discriminative response class, if you want to call it that. So um, I, th I think it was Jason who suggested distinguishing dis discriminative class from, from motivational class. Yeah. Right. Well, well, so part of, um, you, there's this argument in that Skinner makes in verbal behavior, but there's, there's no such thing as a true synonym. Right. And his, the, the, what he's saying there is that um, although there might be, there might be multiple responses and perhaps they all have a, the same, they share the same characteristic reinforcement. You only see one so that you don't get all of them simultaneously. And, and it, there are, are certainly circumstances in which um, there tends to be a hierarchy. So it's, it is that there, you tend to see one and there's, there's um, upon repeating occurrence of any other, you tend to get that one first. And what we might see is that if that undergoes extinction, then we observe the occurrence of a, a different response. And then if that undergoes extinction, the occurrence of another, and then, you know, et cetera, until there are no longer any responses left that are being evoked by that. Yeah, that we're out of responses now that have that characteristic reinforcement. But Dave, I think part of what you're saying is that those there's order in it. It's not like they are mutually interchangeable. It's not like they are random, but we tend to see a particular hierarchy. And that that necessarily means that we're dealing with separate response buttons. Right. That's, That's right. And um, the, 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 the issue is that when you change, um, the, the, the question is how we're to understand novelty and behavior. Hmm. That is when Skinner reinforces the pressing of a lever with uh, uh, 20 Newtons, um, he also gets responses at 22 Newtons, or, or I'm making that up, but anyway. Uh, uh, and, and, and we say, ah, we understand that because it's part of the same class. The question, why is it part of the same class? Uh, what, what justifies our explaining it as part of the same class um, and not uh, hitting it with its tail? That is, what, what's, um, uh, by, by what standard can we, can, we, can we claim that these things are members of the same class? Right. And Skinner says, not in, not early on, but, but in 1969 in Contingencies of Reinforcement, he says, uh, response classes hang together with contingencies. That is, they rise and fall with the same variables. So they distinguish together and they're reinforced together. Um, and that's not true of um, 
hitting it with your tail. Right. Uh, it's better to use a human example. Uh, um, if if you, uh, uh, you you can email your friend or you can text your friend. And if your computer is dead, you text. And if your phone is dead, you use the computer. Um, the 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 extinction of one does not cause the extinction of the other. Right. So Skinner would say those are two different classes, even though they have the same they have the same consequence. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. And and I, I'm going to go further and explain why they hang together, and that is in terms of response elements, which I'll leave for for the next time. That is, we we um, topographically similar responses share share elements that are not shared across topographies. So we expect two responses to occur. Uh, follow, we expect a, 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 a novel response to occur following reinforcement if it's topographically similar to a reinforced topography. Right. Because those elements of the response are already strong in that context. They, they've been conditioned to the discriminative stimuli. Right. Well, so I'm, I'm going to wrap us up, but let's, let's um, dive into that next week. And, and this is... Um, it's not just esoteric. I mean, we, the, the majority of um, people who are here right now work with kids with disabilities, and a, a major part of what we have to do is to um, eliminate problematic behavior. And that this is what functional analysis is. It identifies the response class that you're dealing with, and it, it allows you then to make use of a characteristic reinforcer such that when the EO that goes into place that used to generate problem behavior, and now it doesn't anymore. You've, you've established a new history, you've enacted new contingencies, and behavior can form such that now you get some appropriate demanding given that EO that you didn't use to get. So this, these concepts, the response class concepts, and the way in which we generate them and how they hang together or are taken apart are critical to um, applied work in behavior analysis for sure. Can I can I throw a tidbit out that I've been thinking of in the midst of this? I I just um, you know this talk of subcriterion behavior and uh, is has been interesting to think about with respect to SDs and, and MOs because one of the things that we've seen in the rat lab one of the most reliable effects that we see when you manipulate force is you have these subcriterion behavior they, they, it doesn't it doesn't rise to the to the definition of the response to be counted. But you can pick up on a force transducer or something if the rat is touching the the trans the transducer. Um, Subcriterion behavior is most prevalent immediately after reinforcers, hmm. with the discriminative stimulus onset. So we go through this process where the rat is responding, satisfies some schedule, the reinforcer gets some food pellets, all the lights shut off, the the SD goes away. Now the SD comes on. What is most likely is subcriterion behavior, not hmm. what was just reinforced, and even though the 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 discriminative stimulus is there. You can almost just sort of see uh, on the waveforms the the force sort of dribble up, 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 and up. It's non-reinforced responses that bring the operant back until the schedule is is satisfied. Yeah. And I don't know, reading these papers, I just feel like none of that really connects with that phenomenon, which is one of the most robust that we see in the in the lab. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. This has been. Now, now I want to start doing motivational um, manipulations and see how they affect some criterion behavior, right? So, you know, yeah. if the rat is hungrier or not hungry, casually speaking, mm -hmm. would you see more or less That's of that? That's a great question, huh? Yeah, well, it came out of this discussion. And um, so anyway, I just wanted to, uh, you know, throw that out there.
this is a, a, a really important concept, John, and I, I'm wondering what is uh, what is the effect of a subcriterion lever uh, you know, force thing um, on the rat? That is, there's no reinforcement, so there's extinction for that subcriterion thing, mm -hmm. and then uh, little by little, uh, bingo, there is a reinforced response. Um, I would according to the scheme that I kind of understand, would be that the reinforced response is going to strengthen a population of right. elements uh, and th that are different from one response to another. And that over successive lever presses, more and more and more of these elements would be, um, would be strengthened so that by the termination of the experiment, I would think that um, subcriterion responses would be rarer than at the beginning. Is that something you find? So the subcriterion responses would be less prevalent towards the end of uh, closer to reinforcement than further from it. Right. Not, not closer to reinforcement. Uh, toward the uh, after many many trials, we would see fewer subcriterion. Actually, um, well, there are um, I I. I there are more subcriterion responses early in what we might call acquisition. I, mm -hmm. on a very short FR1, FR5 type schedules, uh, they settle down pretty quickly within three or four sessions. And then they tend to be a pretty stable feature of behavior beyond that. So there are more of them early on that go away. But, um, you know, interestingly, they, they seem to hang around even for a while. So we might appeal to terms like induction to explain why they remain. Uh, we might appeal to, uh, you know, Colleen's uh, memory window that some subcriterion responses are associated with criterion responses in the moment before reinforcement. So perhaps they get, you know, um, uh, you know, they're they're encouraged to hang around because they're, you know, close to the reinforcer delivery. But, um, but John, they don't go away. Spread, you get spread up too, don't you? Don't you mm -hmm. get spread above? You know, it's not. So so that's interesting. I, I remember seeing some of the data that you produced, and it looks sort of like a. a you know, bell curve around the criterion level. Very much so. I mean, I, you know, part of it's pro probably the psychophysical characteristics of the, well, the, the operating characteristics of the rat that, uh, you know, the rat has to detect the force level, you know, and uh, there's probably some error in judgment. So that that might be a source of why you see these dispersions. It's, you know, it's, um, but it's a pretty stable feature of performance after a few sessions. I wonder if it's, um amenable to, um, well, motivational variables. So suppose the subcriterion responses are punished. Would we see, can we, can we, near, can we eliminate those subcriterion responses? Are they, um, are, are they sort of an inevitable characteristic of the procedure or, or is it that the rat has um, uh, well, I, I don't know. I, I guess the, the question I'm asking is, are, are they sensitive to operating contingencies, right? Yeah. Are they can, 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 we, can we limit those subcriteria responses? Right. Because if, if it's the case that it's a uh, psychophysical property, then yeah. that, that you would expect we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to push it around with differential consequences. But but we could use differential consequences. Maybe I, you know, like it's an empirical question. You push it as hard as you can and see what you get, right? And if if we can narrow that the 
the bell curve with those communities. That'd be interesting. Yeah, we, we have one study going right now that we're trying to, we provide a, I'll loosely call it feedback because I don't know necessarily what its functions are, but we provided a cue uh, after each criterion response and its cue is also contiguous with the reinforcer. And uh, we thought, well, if we add this extra receptive cue, would that perhaps strengthen or, or increase the variability or the coefficient of variation about the, about the mean? And so far, we have not seen that that it that it does that. To to your point, Jason, that that just pairing the stimulus alone, if we were to think this feedback stimulus might be a conditional reinforcer, it might strengthen criterion responses with respect to subcriterion responses. We we haven't seen that at all. Um, so now we're going to make them discriminative and see if we can change behavior yeah. that way. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up for today. Okay. And then we'll we'll dive more into response classes next week. Thank you. <laughs>